The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody, to this Friday edition of Squawk Box. Let's get into your headlines this hour. Apple fails to beat earnings expectations for the first time since 2016, despite posting a near 30% jump in quarterly revenue as supply constraints weigh on sales of iPhones, iPads and Mac computers. Amazon posts a major miss as the COVID e-commerce effect starts to fade. Guidance for the critical holiday period also disappoints, leading the stock sharply lower in extended trade. And introducing Meta, Facebook changes its name as CEO Mark Zuckerberg looks to move on from scandal and refocus on the social media giant's vision for the internet. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. The S&P hits a fresh record as investors shrug off worrying GDP growth data, while the Nasdaq also closes at an all-time peak, but before weak earnings reports from its tech heavyweights after the bell. BNP Paribas reporting better than expected results this hour. With a near 5% rise in third quarter revenue, the French lender's CFO Lars Machinel tells CNBC they are well positioned for continued gains. The bank is very solidly, very equipped to basically capture and accompany growth going forward. And so being ready for that basically allows us to launch on Monday a share buyback for 900 million euros. So, very warm welcome to Squabbles. Warm welcome, uh, Karen. We were talking about Meta all week, weren't we? And here we are, where that rather odd uh, presentation from Mark Zuckerberg, where we now are having to conjure with this new Greek term, Meta for Facebook. You take it down the road. Does that mean that we will be sitting eventually as avatars around a virtual set, having a virtual squawk box at some point? Well, we might even be 3D. Uh, Oh, actually, we are 3D. Um, Okay, we're almost there. Apparently, the 3D internet is coming to a home near you soon. So we'll talk about that. What a busy week it's been. Um, Earnings have been central, of course. And we've just had the BNP numbers on the wires. BNP Paribas has posted an almost 5% jump in sustained revenue growth and net income of two and a half billion euros. That beat the expectations and it came in above pre-pandemic levels. The French lender has also announced plans to launch a 900 million euro buyback program from the beginning of next week. Charlotte has been speaking to the CFO of uh, BNP Paribas. You heard him in the headlines, Lars Machinal. We will bring you more of that interview at 7.15 Central European time. But we just want to bring you up to speed first with the Daimler earnings, which are trickling through on the wires here. So in terms of the numbers, we've got a group revenue at 40 billion euros. The equivalent period for the third quarter of 2020 was 40.3. So bang in line, ultimately, with what they delivered on the comparative period. Group EBIT, 3.579 billion euros. The uh, 2020 comparison 
uh, 3.07 billion. So they're a little ahead of last year's run rate, but ultimately, as you can see, pretty flat across the board on the revenue line. Net profit in at 2.573 billion, the third quarter 2020. 2.158 2.158 billion shares uh, or oh, the share from discontinued operations uh, 549 million as against 347 for the third quarter of 2020. The uh, group says uh, we assume that strain supply chains and bottlenecks for key components will continue to have a considerable impact on worldwide vehicle production also in the fourth quarter of the year. In the fourth quarter, an improvement in the semiconductor supply situation compared with the third quarter, despite limited visibility and high volatility, overriding structural shortage of semiconductors is expected to remain an issue in 2022, but should improve compared to the situation in 2021. And the impact of that was total unit sales decreased by 25%, mainly due to the global supply chain constraints. So the message across the board here is it is a beat on the consensus. They do say they are on track for their full year guidance, but ultimately they, like all the other automakers, have been impacted by the chip supply problems. Uh, Also, just a word on luxury, you are seeing demand for those high-end vehicles. That's been a supportive factor here. They call out Mercedes Maybach, Mercedes AMG, the S-Class, G-Class, the GLE, GLS showing strong growth. And they're talking about the favorable mix of uh, and net pricing that offsets some of the semiconductor uh, challenges that they're seeing. So again, uh, another company where you're seeing the high end of town still perform for, for part of the business. Read a very interesting uh, piece of economic analysis yesterday that was looking at the cause of the supply chain issue as it's being reported for a lot of these companies at the moment. And what I thought was interesting about the line was that the argument was that this is a demand shock, that there is no real fundamental problem with the supply chains and that there is no shortage in inverted commas. Ultimately, what we had is an unanticipated pickup in demand that has made those supply chains look underfed. So if that is the case, I mean, if that analysis is accurate, the likelihood that we will return to something that looks very normal quite quickly is high. The argument being made is it is nothing to do with the pandemic, breaking supply chains or the tension between China and the United States affecting the free shipment of those supply chains, what we have ultimately is a demand shock that manufacturers have been struggling to respond to. So the catch-up comes sooner rather than later. It's an interesting line. The only bit that I didn't necessarily buy into was the idea that because China has had uh, a different response to the pandemic where it's locked down a lot of facilities, that to my mind, suggests that there have been breaks and there have been interruptions from the pandemic. But I thought the analysis was interesting because it then weighs on the question of whether the central banks are right to be thinking about tightening as quickly as they are. It's only one piece of the puzzle, though, as you point out, around the zero tolerance approach in China. Mm. Hard to see that that goes away. But I think the other piece in the puzzle here is that you've had this huge change in policy around ESG. I mean, we've seen all these companies move towards 
a completely different model. I mean, these are not mm. the cars that came off the production line in the past, and they're not the cars that consumers are used to buying. So you're seeing a huge upgrade cycle here, which is, again, another anomaly for uh, not just the sector, but for central banks to try and work out. Which um, leads us neatly into j- just pointing out that we are going to talk to Volvo cars uh, a little bit later on in the programme here, a business that has effectively uh, set its stall out as a, a an EV uh, producer solely as they uh, pivot. So let's tell you a little bit about what is coming up on the programme later on. Juliana and Annetta will be speaking to the Daimler CFO Harold Wilhelm. Don't miss that interview at 10.05 CET. That is a first on CNBC and we will talk to Hockham Samuelson over at Volvo Cars as they uh, IPO on the, uh, the Nasdaq there. Now to the big tech stories as Facebook is rebranding itself as Meta to mark the business shift beyond social media into areas like virtual reality. The company says the new name will better encompass its expansion into a space that CEO Mark Zuckerberg calls, quote, metaverse. But some have criticised the move as an attempt to divert attention from recent issues and whistleblower allegations. Speaking during the virtual showcase, CEO Mark Zuckerberg explained the rebrand comes as the company tries to usher in a new chapter. We've built things that have brought people together in new ways. We've learned a lot from struggling with social issues and living under closed platforms. And now it is time to take everything that we've learned and help build the next chapter. I am dedicating our energy to this more than any other company in the world. And if this is the future that you want to see, then I hope that you will join us. Because the future is going to be beyond anything we can imagine. Elsewhere, Apple shares are lower in after-hours trade as the company reported a miss in its latest results, which were weighed down by larger-than-expected supply constraints. Revenue at the technology giant came in at $83.3 billion, with Apple expecting some shortages to continue in the holiday season. Meanwhile, over at Amazon, shares also slid in extended trade. This after third quarter, revenue came in well below forecasts. The e-commerce giant posted weaker sales growth as customers returned back to physical stores. Amazon also gave disappointing guidance for the upcoming quarter. And you think about this from a a market's perspective, you had records on the S&P and the Nasdaq. These stocks were bouncing in the trading session and the after-hours moves suggest uh, selling on the street today, which may just pull these major indices back from those high watermarks as you get the earnings reaction. Let's get to Neil Vecchio, the Global and UK Investment Director at SVM. Neil, thank you very much for joining us. We were all bracing for some issues around supply chain, particularly when we talk about devices. What did you make of what Apple posted around the iPhone sales and some of the early indications about the next quarter? As you say, the market was expecting uh, some form of supply chain issue. And I think the outcome was broadly in line with most people's expectations. Um, The headline obviously will be Apple misses revenue forecast for first time in X number of years. Um, But if I was long Apple stock at this point in time, I wouldn't be terribly concerned on the analyst call. Uh, Management seemed at pains to emphasize that all the demand indications were were very strong. Uh, Some of the supply chain constraints around manufacturing restrictions in Southeast Asia had improved even from early early October. Um, uh, Chip constraints do remain and that will impact the 
the current the current quarter. But when you take a step back and look at the overall shape of the the numbers, revenue up twenty nine percent, guiding to albeit with a, a degree of seasonality and a further improvement on that in, in the current quarter. Services business strong, um, and the Greater China business uh, very very robust. Um, the stock was up, I think, two percent during the trading session. So to lose three in after hours is almost a almost a wash. Um, I don't see too much uh, impact on the Apple story going going forward. Well, I, I take your point. If you look through the earnings, you know, services revenue beat, iPad revenue beat, gross margin was better than expected as well. But when it comes to the devices, that's where you did see the impact, particularly around the iPhone. The 13, it's come to market. We've only seen a very early reaction so far in the third quarter. What are the expectations, though, for the holiday period if there are supply constraints and the devices not getting to shelves and into consumers' hands? Is there catch-up next year or is, is, is that it? Is, is it a bit of a dud cycle? Um, I think it's too much to say it's going to be a, a, a dud cycle. I think you're right, however, to identify that one of the key unknowns with the Apple uh, equity story is how robust the demand for the, the iPhone 13 will, will, will be. Will that constant upgrade and switch cycle uh, remain remain intact? And, and quite frankly, it's too early, too early to know. Uh, early indications are positive, but the product's only been released for for 30 days and it'll be that that traction not just in the holiday season but as through fiscal 22 that will really drive apple's earnings and share price neil what's the right entry price then for for apple at the moment i mean it's had a reasonable run over the 12 months but on a valuation metric uh, compared to the sector it still doesn't look overly demanding but given that there are these question marks as you say about the cycle and about the re- return to work demand spike that we've seen, what comes next? Do you bide your time and look for a better entry price or do you take the stock at this? Uh, well, as a sort of dour Presbyterian Scot, I'm always tempted to say that you, you wait for a better entry price. But at the same time, the, the shares, are, as you've identified, aren't terribly expensive. We are not holders of, of, of Apple and have probably never really fully grasped uh, the implications of the the marriage of hardware and, and software and the benefits that that can bring and doing more for more more for less that attempt by Apple to essentially become the daily operating system for our everyday everyday use and you can see that in in, in the services revenue the advancements they're making in, in watch and, and health etc so it's quite a difficult. Um, I find it anyway a difficult story to to necessarily get on, on top of. On one hand, I can see that it makes our daily lives more efficient. There's a danger that we extrapolate from our own individual experiences into a broader population, and that's quite and that's quite dangerous. And then you've just got that unknown as to to what extent do consumers want to continuously upgrade to the to the latest model. Um, again, if I use my children as an example, they're all clamouring for the iPhone 13. Now, that may say more about me as a parent than it says about underlying de- demand. Um, but I think it is quite. it does go to the, the nub of the, the, the Apple equity story, trying to ascertain what that longer-term runway looks like. I'm absolutely with you, Neil. I mean, my daughter lost a... Uh, lost in inverted commas, a phone on the bus the other day. And I thought, hang on a second. I know this is about an upgrade. Fortunately, I managed to find it again. So she'll have to wait and see whether it turns up for Christmas. But let me ask you about Amazon while we've got you uh, with us. Um, Obviously, you say you don't own Apple. Do you own Amazon? And how do you feel about the numbers? And we do own, 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 own Amazon 
Um, quite frankly, the numbers are a bit a bit messy. Um, again, I don't think necessarily it changes the the longer term equity equity story. Um, but there's no questioning that, that the numbers are are, are are messy. Amazon takes a maybe term it pragmatic uh, approach to its its earnings. What I mean by that is that it will continue to invest. Uh, with a view to strengthening its, its customer proposition. And clearly that's what it, it's doing uh, currently. Um, but it has been impacted by uh, supply disruption. It's having to pay its staff more. You can see the guidance for the uh, fourth calendar quarter, uh, whereby last year I think they made $6 billion in the quarter. They're now guiding to a range of, of zero to, to, to three. Um, the supply chain issues are are certainly biting them. Um, and that is something that is not just germane to um, the technology, so hardware space, or it's, it's something that any manufacturing business um, will face over the next couple of months. And certainly in our conversations with, with companies, um, they are uh, guiding towards a, a perhaps a greater uh, financial impact than we had previously um, anticipated. Um, but coming back to, to Amazon again, um, there were positives within the, the, the overall release. AWS um, accelerated again. Uh, I think revenue was up 39% year on year. And given the size of that business and the margins it generates, that's a very impressive, impressive performance. But certainly, I think there'll be more question marks over Amazon's earnings than there will have been over Apple's today. Well, away from the AWS tailwind uh, around cloud services, I want to just delve a little deeper into that uh, retail side of the business because to me it seems as though Amazon's been disrupted by the pandemic. You've got all these other players now that can do super fast delivery and uh, Amazon's delivery has slipped even if it's prime. Haven't we seen the disruptors and even from the major retail stores that are going after super fast delivery, That whether it's 10 minutes or 30 minutes, this is a game changer for an Amazon, isn't it? Um. It's certainly something they need to be aware of, and I think it's reflected in that increased investment uh, to to deepen their fulfilment um, network. And, and certainly, um, you are seeing, if you want to call it the incumbents, the, the empire striking back uh, against some of the the technology technology companies. Whether we can extend that uh, globally, I'm not quite I'm not quite sure. And for us, the bull case on, on on Amazon would be centered more around international expansion. Uh, while the, the competitive threat in, in the US may well have increased, we still believe that e-commerce uh, will continue to take share. So there is enough uh, runway for, for not just Amazon, but an increased uh, or better response from the, from the incumbent. But the really interesting aspect is that international growth allied to the strength in, in, in EWS. So it's, it's certainly something to, to keep an eye keep an eye on. And as I say, there's, there's no, no debating that this is a, a messy quarter from, from Amazon. Um, I just wouldn't read too much into, into one particular quarter. Neil, we're going to say goodbye, but thanks so much for getting up and joining us this morning. Uh, Neil Vietch, uh, Global and UK Investment Director at SVM, coming to us uh, from Edinburgh. Uh, coming up on the programme, we look ahead to the G20 Leaders Summit as President Biden arrives in Rome. He'll be catching up with the Pope before heading over to Glasgow.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. BNP Paribas has posted an almost 5% jump in sustained revenue growth and net income of 2.5 billion euros, beating expectations and coming in well above pre-pandemic levels. Let's get out to Charlotte Moore. Charlotte, you've been looking at the numbers. What jumped out to you? Well, it's a strong performance here again for BNP Paribas, beating expectations. As you say, revenue up 4.7% compared to last year and up 4.6% compared to 2019. Net income came at 2.5 billion euros again above expectations. That's up 29% compared to 2019. Um, so uh, the three divisions uh, had revenue uh, positive domestic markets. In particular, there is a part of the business that did well already in the second quarter, one with a little bit sluggish before, now really showing signs of the economic recovery trickling through. They mentioned that they've seen higher loans, in particular in France, more mortgages uh, being approved. So I had a chance to catch up with the CFO of BNP Paribas, Lars Machinil, to discuss in specific the performance in that part of the business. Take a listen. There is a demand and a pickup for lending activity going into investments and the likes. So that's basically fine. And we are fully there. We're fully uh, performing to deliver and support them in the lending activities. When it comes to deposits, yes, there is a lot of deposits that are there given the, 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 the confinements that we have behind us. But what we see in the majority of European countries is that there is a trend now to switch more into structured equity products, maybe not yet pure equity products, but structured products, products that have probably a floor and a cap and the likes. And so we are very well positioned to provide these services to our clients. So that's what we're doing. And as as you mentioned, domestic markets really shows uh, very solid results on the back of that. You mentioned a little bit earlier the share buyback program that you just announced for 900 million euros from November 1st. So tell us what is the thinking behind launching this buyback program now? If you look at our ratios, we basically clock in at a 10.4% ROTE and we are at 13% common equity T1. I used to have this saying, I'm not in the business of stacking up capital. Yeah? So we are very well positioned. We have shown in, in good times and in bad times, we are there to support our customers. And so in this case, we are in a position where we are really totally ready to support our customers and therefore basically step up uh, this uh, return to shareholders. It was last machine the CFO of BNP Paribas uh, discussing this uh, share buyback program for 900 million euros that they announced just uh, this morning. Now, looking at CIB in specific, the revenue there was up 25% compared to 2019. Fake, like we've seen in other banks, of course, down compared to the volatility that we had last year, down 28%. But equities, where we saw recovery already in the previous quarter, now revenue up 80%, particularly in equity. So uh, overall, a strong performance from BNP. The cost of risk lower. They mentioned moderate release of provisions on performing loans and limited number of new defaults. So cost of risk came at 32 basis points, down 33%. Again, C2 ratio, 13%. So a strong performance there. A return on tangible equity at 10.4%, so stable compared to the previous quarters. Now, they didn't give specific guidance. They only said that they expected this year to, uh, revenue to be up. They mentioned, of course, that this will be the case. And that 
probably the result would be better than it, that they had expected a few quarters ago. And finally, they announced a new strategic plan will be announced in February when they announce also their full year results uh, for the bank for the few years going ahead. Karen. Let me pick up. Charlotte, thank you very much. Let's uh, move on. President Biden has landed in Rome for the G20 summit where climate change will dominate the conversation ahead of COP26 in Glasgow, as well as the uh, supply chain issues and the Iranian nuclear program. So he's got a fairly full agenda. Um, He'll also be hoping to soothe some of those bruised egos in Paris. A uh, meeting, I think, between uh, France and and the United States pretty much on the agenda as Biden meets Macron today to try to heal the post-AUKUS rift. Let's get to Sylvia, who joins us from Rome. Uh, Sylvia, just set the scene for us. Um, Tell us a little bit about the anticipation uh, among Europeans for the arrival of the U.S. president. So it will be an important weekend here in Iran, that's for sure. But before we get into the detail, let me just explain you where we are. We're just a few steps away from the Fontana de Trevi and one of the most famous spots here in Rome. And you can see in the background as well a couple of flags at the official residency of the president of Italy, Sergio Mattarella. And indeed, this is the city where the heads of state of the G20 economies will be gathering this weekend. And as you mentioned, the, mo- the biggest focus of their conversations will be on climate change. Hence, their discussions are seen as a barometer for what we can expect from COP26 starting next week. And indeed, let's see how ambitious these largest economies will be over the weekend. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who will be here uh, in Rome this weekend as well, she said on Thursday that as the largest emitters, the G20 has a a special responsibility to act. We have the uh, 20 most advanced economies around the table. These 20 largest economies also represent 80% of the emissions worldwide. And therefore, we have a special responsibility to act. Uh, The commitments that will be taken in Rome on climate change will somehow be also, of course, a pacemaker for the COP26. What we need is, first of all, leadership. We need leadership for credible commitments for decarbonization to reach the goal of net zero mid-century. But we also need sufficient commitments to really cut the emissions this decade. Science is very clear on that. Science tells us it's urgent. We are not on track right now. So let's see how these discussions over the weekend will pan out. On Thursday, China announced their official climate targets, but they were not more ambitious from what President Xi Jinping had already announced in 2020. So let's see how fruitful these discussions will be. And then, of course, how much momentum they will give to COP26 starting on Monday. Thank you very much. And just a reminder for the audience, more from the G20 Summit, don't miss Worldwide Exchange, where our colleague Sarah Eisen will speak to U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. That is coming up at 11 CET. Philips has announced that 50% of its suppliers will be committing to CO2 emissions reductions by 2025 as the company ramps up its supplier sustainability program ahead of COP26. Juliana spoke with the CEO, Franz Van Halten, and asked him what he would like to see come out of the summit. I am worried because, um, yes, COP26 is going to happen and there will be meetings. There will be lots of talk. 
right? Um, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. People need to get on the bandwagon and start doing things as soon as possible. So the call to action clearly is that we all need to get uh, uh, into the details and start executing on the plan, get on that learning curve, because that's the only way to make uh, the change happen. And um, there's still too many people that are not doing things, they're only talking about it. And at Philips, we have learned through years of experience that you, you need to get all your people involved, all your engineers, uh, everybody in the company needs to contribute. They like that also because the next generation is very involved uh, and then we get going. Uh, so COP26, I hope that people go beyond just making statements and get into strong action. Uh, Franz van Houten then from Philips and we'll bring you full coverage from COP26 with Steve and Juliana on the ground in Glasgow from Monday. Uh, our lineup includes UN climate champion for COP26, Nigel Topping, pre the president of Costa Rica, Carlos Alvarado, and the environment minister of Korea, Han jung A. From the uh, corporate side, we'll be joined by the likes of UBS chair Axel Weber, uh, NatWest CEO Alison Rose and Santander boss Anna Bortin. Let's have a look at some uh, some data. We've got some French preliminary third quarter numbers here. So we're getting a little bit of a... It was interesting, actually, wasn't it? The US GDP number came in weaker, I think. 2%, wasn't it, instead of the 2 percent We did talk yesterday with uh, one of our guests about what to do on the back of that weaker GDP, whether it stays the Fed's hand. Well, I guess we're, we're doing the same kind of maths as we look at these European GDP numbers. The uh, French uh, preliminary third quarter GDP in at 3% quarter on quarter. The forecast here was for 2.1%. So this is a big beat on the expectation. The uh, uh, revised uh, for the second quarter was plus 1.3%. So again, you see a big spike here on uh, people going back about their business. Uh, household spending up 5% quarter on quarter. Business investment negative 0.1%. So domestic demand X inventories contributing 3.3 percentage points to the third quarter GDP number. Foreign trade 0 0.6 points and inventories uh, zero, uh, uh, negative 0 0.9 points. A pickup in domestic demand driving this growth over the third quarter. Actually had some tourism this year, didn't it? I mean, we were talking to Arco yesterday that uh, we saw many more people decide to go and travel and pick up uh, where they left off. A lot of caution last year where only the game really travelled, but they had many more visitors this year, and I think that's probably reflected in the numbers too. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.